Good morning. For some of you, it's probably your first session of reInvent, right? Fantastic. It's my first session. It's great to be here. You are in Enterprise DevOps, beginning with production, ready, migration. So thanks for coming today. My name is John Brigden. I'm general manager for a service called AWS Managed Services. For some of you who might not have heard of that service, it's a, a service that provides a production-ready, compliant, secure operating environment on AWS to help customers and partners operate their production workloads on AWS. Along with me is my colleague, George. Hello. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm George Watts from the uh, Worldwide Public Sector team. I'm a principal SA with uh, Amazon, but I've been um, with the company about five years. And previously, I actually ran one of the global professional services teams called Operations Integration. So what we did was a lot of project work, helping customers get production ready. So I've done a lot of work with John and his team and with our key enterprise customers like Steve Day, who will be joining us later. So great to be here today. Great. Thanks for being here, George. Uh, really looking forward to our discussion. Another gentleman is going to join us a little bit into the session, Steve Day, uh, who's an executive with National Australia Bank, a customer of ours. Uh, he's actually meeting with Andy Jassy right now. And uh, so he's running a little bit late, but he'll be joining us. And we'll call him up on stage a uh, little bit, uh, about a third of the way into our, our session. And he'll talk a little bit about his uh, and uh, NAB's journey to production-ready environment. So here's our agenda for today. We have 60 minutes. Uh, our agenda for today is first, we're going to talk about what it means uh, from our experiences working with customers and partners to, to help you help our customers create production-ready environments at scale. Uh, it's a concept we call enterprise DevOps. So we're going to set the table a bit on that and what it means and use some examples and, and, and walk you through that. Uh, we'll also spend a little time talking about um, AMS, the service I mentioned briefly, and some of the use cases that we're working on with customers as well. And then finally, we want to spend some time really talking about, uh, with Steve, their journey and uh, moving to the cloud and going all in in a production-ready environment and some of the lessons learned uh, that you can take away, hopefully help you in your journey as well. So let's start first talking about what is enterprise DevOps? You know, what is it? What is this concept enterprise DevOps? Everybody understands what DevOps is all about, right? DevOps is about, about combining uh, application development uh, with the operation environment. You build it, you run it, right? This continuous mode of, of operation and development in a, in a continuous fashion, right? releasing unheard of paces of innovation, speed, and agility. And it's really the buzz and, and the chemistry that everyone's chasing. Uh, and while it's very easy to get started on AWS uh, with DevOps, um, it can be challenging uh, when you start to think about other aspects of launching DevOps at scale in an enterprise, let's say. Thinking about, for example, bringing your legacy applications into the cloud. How should you think about DevOps from that standpoint? The developers of those applications may not even be there anymore, right? Do you have to refactor the entire application? Should you refactor the entire application? Lots of tricky questions on, on getting to a DevOps operating model uh, when you start thinking about legacy applications. Existing processes, what tools do you leave behind? What tools do you bring over? What processes do you leave behind? Which processes do you bring over? The whole conversation about launching the right processes in the cloud to support not just native applications, but also legacy applications that you might have minimally refactored and bring into the cloud. And then there's this, this issue around governance and compliance and security. For many uh, organizations, these topics are, 
are, are you know, they're, they're as important as focusing on the innovation side of the business. And certainly thinking about an operating environment uh, in which these take equal priority, that can be a challenge. Sometimes um, these challenges uh, create some animosity between the concepts of ITIL, which is a framework that's been used uh, for many years uh, in a traditional data center sense, uh, as well as uh, contrasting that to a DevOps environment. And you know, sometimes people characterize ITIL as perhaps being a heavily bureaucratic or burdened or change management environment where, where the criticism of DevOps can be, uh, it can be, it, it can be uh, unconstrained uh, and, and not secure and or uh, not driving enough standardization. From our perspective and talking with customers, we think both these frameworks have a lot of merit, obviously, and have a lot of commonalities. In fact, when you think about ITIL, when you think about an ITIL framework, um, the original premise between ITIL was very much around driving business value. How do you get business value around IT? How do we share concepts of, of traditional IT capabilities in a business language? Certainly DevOps is all about driving innovation and agility from a business uh, mind, uh, from an application business mindset. Similarly, both these frameworks are really focused on how do we ensure continuous operation, availability, uh, minimal disruption? Uh, how do we drive change in a thoughtful way? So I think, and the premise we propose to you in working with customers is very much that these two frameworks have a lot in common, and that if we can bring these two concepts together and start talking about the, 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 the intent, uh, not necessarily some of the stereotypes of either of these models, but really get to the intent of these two models, we can really create a model that helps enterprises and helps our customers move fast. So in working with all of our customers, some of the grounding principles of what we talk about when we talk about enterprise DevOps are really some of these, uh, some of these items. At first, it's about really working backwards from the production environment, really thinking about the run state, not just the migration. Migration of, in and of itself is not necessarily an outcome. It's really thinking about the production-ready migration and operation. So really thinking about the end in mind uh, and informing that at the beginning of the process. It's also about embracing standardization and new processes. And every DevOps team shouldn't have to recreate the wheel on how to stand up a compliance environment or a minimal secure environment or driving standardization on efficiencies and principles. So it's really borrowing patterns of success uh, and patterns of frameworks that can be leveraged uh, in the environments. Uh, similarly, it's about thinking about operating constructs that support not just net new cloud native application stacks, but applications that have come over that are in the process of modernization that may be themselves going through a journey. Um, it's also, of course, about the people and the culture uh, and building an environment where you're creating a situation where you're bringing people along. It's not just about the developers. There's multiple players at stake in an enterprise. And how do you get them involved uh, in a migration, and what's the right way to bring them in, involved, and how do you build a sustaining operating environment from that context? And lastly, it's about focusing your precious few resources and capabilities in the cloud on differentiation and really getting leverage from standardization and best practices in a thoughtful way and something you can drive at scale across your environment. So these are the principles of what we, what we mean when we talk about enterprise DevOps. And a good, a good frame of reference or a good diagram that you might, you might find useful, we, I use this all the time with our customers and our partners, and it's a good frame of reference to be thinking about what we're talking about between these concepts. 
If you look at the left, and you think of these as very much operating models, if you look at the left, most enterprises um, running a traditional data center framework are thinking about their applications in deep areas of specialization, lots of handoffs. You may have an application development team. You may have an infrastructure engineering team. You may have an application operations team or an infrastructure operations team. And you've got lots of handoffs uh, when a change is made or any kind of adjustments made to the environment between these, between these models. And, and that can result in, in, in loss of innovation, loss of speed, and some of the other challenges that enterprises can face today. On the right-hand side, though, this notion that DevOps and DevOps teams, and you might have literally tens or dozens or maybe even hundreds of DevOps teams in your environment. And if these DevOps teams are left to figure everything out for themselves, network configuration, security compliance, compliance with PCI, uh, change management, um, automation, in addition to writing the application to achieve their, their business outcome, you can get uh, to a place where you have a lot of, uh, of non-standardization, a lot of complexity, and perhaps create an environment that you don't want either that can slow down what you're really trying to achieve, which is a pace of innovation, agility, and speed, but also maintaining levels of compliance and security. So the middle model is, is recognizing this concept of some set of standardized capabilities, both in terms of policy as well as mechanisms that can drive both um, um, preventative upfront protections as well as detective capabilities. So when a DevOps team finds themselves going off the rails, for example, in a certain area, how do you give them information to course correct and drive uh, back on them? How do you leverage change and change management consistently across DevOps teams? How do you share security policies consistently across DevOps teams? How do you handle incidents or events across your DevOps teams in a consistent way? And then how do you capture the innovation across these DevOps teams and continually feed it back into your operating environment so that you continuously get better? Anyway, so that's, that's the context for enterprise DevOps. We'll, come, we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, from a framework and mechanism standpoint, but I wanted to hand it over to my colleague George who's gonna talk a little bit now about what we mean when we talk about being production ready. George? Thanks, John. So thanks, everyone. Um, you were seeing on John's slides earlier, he, he talked about the first step of Enterprise DevOps being um, production ready. So my section of the presentation is gonna talk a little bit about what that means and why it's important. Um, just to summarize what production readiness actually means in a nutshell is it's a broad general consensus within your organization that the cloud is an appropriate place to run production or business critical workloads. And I'd be interested to know if you're sitting there at the moment, you know, is that the case in your organization? Is it generally accepted? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. The other aspect of that is why is that so important? And, and I think our belief is that you only really start to get the most value out of the cloud once you start running production workloads at scale on the cloud. And there's a few technical reasons for that, things like data gravity moving to the cloud, but actually more important is cultural reasons. It's the cultural mindset that your organization then has. So when we start to look at enterprise DevOps and, and how you implement that, if that cultural mindset's not there, it's really difficult to embed enterprise DevOps. So if we think about like the table stakes of, of what people often refer to or think about when they talk about production readiness, they normally think about these kind of things, almost kind of like a checklist approach. If you're gonna run production on cloud, it must be secure, right? It must be stable, it must be resilient, we must be managing costs. These are the things that your enterprise expects you to have in place. 
And really, this is what a lot of people focus on when they're building out their, their production-ready environments. But, but I would argue this is not enough. You know, this is kind of what you need to be doing anyway. What your business is really looking for you to do is deliver these kind of outcomes. You know, dramatic realignment of costs away from CapEx to OpEx. Uh, massive access to new scale and new innovation capabilities. Hugely improved time to market. So I guess my first question would be, for you thinking about production readiness in your environment, would be, you know, what does your business view production ready as being? Is it the same thing as you? Would, that, would they say the environment's production ready if, it, if they're still not able to bring products to market quickly enough? Or, they, or you're denying them access to the scale and innovation they're looking for? It's important that, that this is the first area you can kind of really drop the ball on when you're, when you're thinking about production readiness. It's actually worth looking at some of the the two key use cases for cloud and how these relate to pr production readiness. So within AWS, we, we normally look at two use cases for cloud. And almost anything that's done on the cloud fits into one of these categories. And the first is, is innovation or native. So typically, if you're going to build something on the cloud that's new, you would, you would do it cloud native. You'd, start, you'd do it using DevOps. You would use, make it highly agile. And a lot of analytics and kind of AI, ML kind of workloads fit nicely into that. And what you see with innovation is as you start to use the cloud for that kind of use case, the value is fairly linear, right? The more people in your organization perform that kind of function or, or, or use the cloud in that way, the more value you get. It's a fairly linear relationship. But for your existing workloads that you're going to migrate to the cloud, that you're going to move to the cloud, that relation is not, is not linear, right? You, you can um, build a lot of uh, or start doing a lot of migrations without necessarily seeing the business value or benefits that you're expecting. So a good example might be is, let's say uh, you know, I move half my VMs onto the cloud. I've still got to maintain that VM server and look after it and look after the half that I didn't move. So I'm now paying for two environments, and I've got two operating model support. So that's what we mean when there's, there's less of a linear association with using um, or, or migrating your existing workloads. And in fact, what we see is you only really start to see a lot of value once a lot of production starts moving and you can start turning things off in your old environment and stop doing things the way you used to in your old environment. Now, the other sort of uh, insight to take out of this, this diagram is that a successful migration actually supports a number of different use cases then. It's not just a question of setting AWS up or the cloud up to work in a certain way. I've got to actually support many different ways of working to support different types of application management and different types of workloads. Eventually, I want them to come back together because eventually I want everything to be run efficiently in cloud native and best practice. But it may be that your operating model and your migration needs to support both of those. So again, thinking about production ready, production ready is not necessarily at one point in time I'm now production ready. It could be that I'm actually having to support many different versions of production ready in my organization over time, and that they're changing and coming back together. What's the problem, though? And one of the problems with, with this we've seen for, for quite a few customers is this phenomenon known as the great store. And um, this, this phenomenon has been around for a while. And in fact, um, if you can go back onto uh, YouTube and go back to a, a few re reinvents ago, there was a session called the great store uh, run by my colleague Eric Tachibana. Very worthwhile looking up. And it's, it was talking about some, some research that was done from some uh, many big enterprise customers that we have who had a business case that said, we're going to have this kind of adoption for our cloud, but that's not happening. In fact, it's flatlining or even falling backwards. Now, why was that the case? And it's actually interesting. You look at those two use cases. It was happening for different reasons. 
on the innovation side, what we were seeing was a lot of customers who were great at running innovation workloads, but those individual DevOps teams weren't really stepping up to the mark when it came to governance or compliance or cost management. And so that they, at some point, some governance function would say, no more. We can't carry on using the cloud at this scale because we're not managing it effectively. I'm dealing with that with a customer at the moment where they really didn't want to put showback or chargeback kind of cost control mechanisms in to slow people down, but they're now paying for that because they don't feel they've got a good handle as they use the cloud more and more that costs are under control or where they want them to be. Um, on the retiring technical debt on the migration side, stalls tend to happen when you're, you're, you're trying to move applications and the people who run or look after those applications aren't able to do what they did before. And I think, you know, we talk about lift and shift sometimes in the migration world, but, you know, when a customer talks to me about lift and shift and I say, the operations you've got for those applications you're moving, those, those operations were never designed for AWS. So how do you know they're going to work properly? And in many cases, they don't work particularly effectively or as effectively. So those are kind of two reasons why stalls happen. And they all come from actually a similar failure which is that your cloud platform that you're migrating things onto or you're starting to use is almost like a product. So think of it almost like a business. And one of the traps you can kind of fall into early on is you base that product or you base that business around the very first people who come in the door and want to use it. So if, you're, if your cloud platform is based around the needs of the initial DevOps users or the initial innovation teams, fantastic, you've done a great job for them. But everyone else in the organization may not have those needs. It may not be able to use the environment in the same way. Interesting, I was doing a, a review last year for a, a, an FSI in Australia. And um, they'd built a really nice centralized pipeline that was managing the environment, highly immutable, refreshed the environment every 60 days, really great, baked in all the compliance that was needed. But for the existing application teams who are used to an outsource provider, suddenly they were being asked to take a lot more accountability than they were before. And in fact, if something went wrong with their environment before, they could just phone up their outsource provider and, and basically shout at them, basically complain. Now, they thought, they, they thought that service wasn't very good, but at least they had someone to talk to if something went wrong. You took that crutch away from them on cloud, and suddenly this is a big problem. It doesn't matter how sophisticated the solution is, I haven't met your needs. The other part of this sort of evolution piece is that people's needs and wants change over time. You know, if, if I was setting up a cloud four years ago, serverless really wasn't a big part of the picture. If I was to try and set that same cloud up now, I, I'd be considered hopelessly out of date or, or not providing you know, that kind of range of functionality that people want to see. So what are some of the symptoms? How do you know if you're stalling? How do you know if you haven't got the production readiness piece right? This is some 451 research about common migration pain points. And what's super interesting about this, this set of uh, data points here is that none of these are technology problems. None of them are we couldn't get things to work or um, we had major outages or the cloud wasn't stable or anything like that. These are all kind of governance and oversight kind of considerations. Costed out of control. We've got security concerns. You're not articulating the security profile well to me. Uh, business requirements are changing. You're not fast enough. And interestingly, if we think about why those, those kind of issues would occur, it really comes down to people that the people performing those functions haven't been consulted, they're not able to do their jobs properly, maybe um, the expectations or accountabilities that were given to them um, weren't well understood. So, you know, for us, if I look at those 24, 27% there, 451 kind of categorized them around skills and numbers of people. I would actually add a few more dimensions to those numbers. 
I think organization is, is amazingly important. Have you organized yourself to take advantage of the cloud? We talk about operating model or not. Motivation. Do people actually want to use the cloud? Do they perceive the cloud as being a place that's good for them? Is it somewhere they can build their, their, their careers on? So, you know, culture, organization, these are, these are some pretty important other dimensions. So I think one of the key takeaways for you today would be, how do I avoid those kind of people problems happening? So organizational change management is um, it's just a discipline that I'm, I'm, I think is really, really important, and a lot of cloud projects are missing it right now. So part of your production readiness journey needs to be, how am I going to manage this change to all of those people who are going to need to be involved in the enterprise DevOps framework? And if you don't have a, uh, an OCM lens or an OCM function or someone who's caring about OCM on your cloud project, you've got potentially an issue. This research is from an organization called ProSci. ProSci are um, one of the leading global organizations that, that, that think about or, or drive organizational change management. They do a very well-respected biannual survey on, um, on the state of organizational change management. And one of the things that consistently comes up is how few projects or migrations succeed without active organizational change management. So we have some great partners who can help with that. Um, I'd love to connect you with some of them. There's a segue there. So, so one thing that's interesting to talk about is I talked about you know, this broad consensus of people within your organization that care about production readiness. So, You've got some different stakeholders in there that might be existing in your organization. If I went to every one of those people in your organization and I asked them to define production readiness from them, from their perspective, I would suggest I'd probably get nine quite different answers, depending on who I spoke to and depending how they were feeling that day and depending on what issues they were dealing with. So part of the challenge for you as you're, as you're building your cloud out and you're thinking about your migration is how do I engage effectively with those people? You know, how do I get them to articulate what they need to have in place for production readiness to, uh, to be there so we don't stall? Another really important part of that question is when do I need to go and talk to those people? So this is what typically happens. We have a cloud journey that looks something like this. So we start a cloud journey and we think about what, what our cloud needs to do and what kind of features and functions we want to give everyone. And we talk to developers and data scientists first. Because they're the people knocking on the door saying, give me cloud, give me access to these, these kind of capabilities. I want to start using the cloud. But after a while, we realize we want to put some pretty sensitive workloads on the cloud. So we maybe need to bring in security and find out from them what they need to have in place to let us use the cloud for production. And then we get a call from the finance team who are starting to say, hey, guys, you're spending thousands of dollars every month additionally. We didn't know what this was. How are we going to attribute this cost? How are we going to do procurement? And we keep going along, more and more people getting involved as, as they become a blocker or a pain point to the bit that we want to actually start cutting over to production. So we, we talk to the operations and support people and say, oh, by the way, we're about to do a migration here. You're going to have to support this once it goes live. And then we find out that none of their tools work. People haven't been trained properly. They haven't done their game day testing. So the production gets rolled back or it gets halted or there's a problem. So, so leaving it so late is, is normally the, a typically easy way to fail. Um, and interestingly, even if it does succeed, then we'll go and tell the rest of the business and tell them what a great job we've done. At that point, if we're really not delivering the business value we're expecting, then we've got to go right back to the start. So that's a really inefficient way of thinking about your production readiness, is to sort of think about it sequentially. This is a much better way, which is to think about your cloud environment like a product. And you do the stakeholder analysis very, very early on, 
and you built a really strong roadmap of features and functions for all of these different personas, what they need to have happening in the environment to be production ready. You can't do everything straight away, so it's important that you've got feature drops for your cloud environment every so often that is just what is needed at that point in time. You don't want to try and do everything straight away, but it's really important that each one of those stakeholders feels listened to early on and that you're publishing a roadmap so they understand when they will get the things they need. The other key learning here is that your chances of getting it right from their perspective, first go, are pretty minimal. Um, you know, for example, within, within AWS, when we release services, we are constantly getting feedback, and those services can iterate and change very, very significantly based on what the customers tell us actually works for them. You need to do the same in your environment. Just assuming, for example, that the finance team are going to be able to make API calls, get the billing information they need, and do whatever, they, that, that may work, it may not work. They may need some sort of GUI, or they may need some sort of tool integration done. It's really important that you have the organization in place to sort of flex and change and iterate. And also, we are releasing hundreds of services a year, and other providers as well. So how am I going to take those services? How am I going to bring them in? How am I going to, how am I going to make them work? So that from a production readiness perspective overall, it is about understanding those personas, and it's about you having a method in place to build a roadmap around them and bleed those, um, those uh, features and functions out as they're needed. I just want to touch briefly on migration itself. So actually moving applications and how production readiness works in these kind of, um, these kind of scenarios. I just want to leave you with, with one overall kind of thing to keep in mind, is that as you're migrating, you must have production readiness in mind right from the migration. It, it should never be something you're trying to bolt on to the end. And there's really three dimensions to that to be successful. So it is about having a production-ready culture across the whole migration effort and the whole migration organization. There's three areas I particularly want to relate to, one which talks about the overall approach to designing operations and accountability. How are you organizationally structured to be production-ready during your migration? And how you keep the customer in mind? So let's just double-click on the first one. Migrating with operations in mind simply says that as I'm migrating something to AWS, I'm able to answer the who question. Who is going to look after this application when it lands on AWS? Who's going to improve it? Who's going to perform critical operational activity to make sure it's governed and, and, and looked after properly? A good example would be is if, if this application ends up costing far more than I expected it to, who is actually going to be responsible for fixing that? Or if this application breaks at three in the morning, who is going to pick the phone up? It's answering that who question. To do that effectively, you've got to go and engage with all of those people who could potentially be on the hook for answering the who question. And if, uh, we, we often use an approach uh, which is around operational game days or scenario testing. We'll get everyone in a room and make sure that that who question for every single step of those scenarios is being answered. One really useful approach is what we call minimum viable refactoring. And what that simply means is setting a minimum standard for all of those teams who are going to answer the who question around that workload when you move it. So it should never be, I'm just lifting and shifting. It should always be, I've got to do a certain level of change to this application to make sure I get the right telemetry, I'm able to automate it properly, uh, I'm able to, it's got the right metadata attached. John's going to talk a little bit about AMS. AMS is a great approach for this, because one of the things AMS does is it says, these are the minimum standards we need to run the environment properly. And it's really helpful for our customers to look at something like that and be able to say, okay, this is the minimum change I've got to make. But generally lifting and shifting with no change whatsoever is really, really hard to then operate once it's moved. 
Second point is, once I've decided who, who's gonna do something, I need to think about organization and structure. And if you've been around DevOps, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you build it, you own it. The interesting thing about this phrase is, it also has to work in reverse. If I'm operationally accountable for something, I must be able to build it. Meaning I must be able to flex, change, update it, iterate it, improve it. So for all of those people who are gonna answer yes to the who question, when you're thinking about your migration, you've gotta make sure they're trained and they're, they're able to update and iterate that service. You know, particularly based on this importance of feedback, people may not like this service after they move it. So I've gotta be able to change it, I've gotta be able to improve it. And then finally, and most importantly, is, is probably this one, which is delighting your customer. Amazon is a very customer-focused company. We start with our customer and work backwards. I would caution all of you when you're thinking about your cloud migration is not to think of your applications like chess pieces on the board or cells in the spreadsheet to be moved from A to B. People look after those applications. People support them. People's day-to-day -day job is, is all about these applications. So if you're gonna get support for your, for your migration, if you're gonna get that production-ready mindset, you've gotta answer the what's in it for me question for every single one of those people. They must perceive the cloud to be a better environment for them to do their business in and work in. And that means you need to be thinking about training, communications, interfaces, user experience, a whole bunch of areas so that you get that momentum. Um, it can be something quite as simple as who's gonna pick up the phone? Who's gonna pick up the phone if this application breaks? Um, what do I want that experience to be? How long should it take? How, how, how are support tickets raised and, uh, and resolved? It's also, not a, it's, it's also not a destination, it's a journey. That concept, people's um, understanding of what they wanna see or their customer delight is continuously evolving. It needs to be continuously improving and you must have mechanisms in your, both your migration and your operation to make sure that you're able to improve and take that feedback. So, um, with that, I'm gonna hand over to John to talk a little bit more about AMS. Hey, thanks George, that was great, really appreciate that. Uh, just a couple of thoughts on AMS, and then I want to turn uh, and get Steve up here and chat about the, the customer story. So just real quickly, in case that you guys are not familiar with uh, AMS, AMS is, uh, is a production-ready, out-of-the-box uh, operating environment uh, for you. It's particularly well-suited for legacy applications that need to be minimally viably refactored, brought into the cloud environment. Uh, think of AMS as a, as, a, as a service, like any other service. It's month-to-month, -month, it's consumption-based, it's API-driven. Uh, it's iterative, we're onboarding new AWS services continuously and helping you consume them and our partners consume them in a consistent, thoughtful way. Uh, we, we leverage and curate uh, underlying AWS management tools as well as the underlying uh, AWS services and drive to a standardized uh, set of change and control management um, uh, layer, if you will, platform capability that then allows your uh, central IT and application teams to snap into that leveraging anything from ITSM tools and capabilities uh, to the application scaling mechanisms themselves as well. Uh, in terms of what we do, right, so think of, uh, of AMS as really packaging together uh, underlying AWS services, uh, enabling easier consumption for enterprises and, and our partners. Um, right now we're operating that at over 88% fully automation, meaning that every change provision uh, or environmental uh, change that gets, uh, gets performed in your environment is completely automated. Uh, we have flywheels of operations and a service team ourselves that can then continuously improve that automation, building templates and patterns that can be reused across your DevOps teams and your central policy and compliance teams. 
Um, we are really an augmentation service to an enterprise or to a partner's infrastructure team. Uh, and uh, our, our focus is to help you offboard uh, some of the undifferentiated heavy lifting, maintaining security, compliance, and efficiency levels so you can focus and learn and adopt uh, AWS at a much faster pace to be successful. So that's, uh, that's the headlines on AMS. So with that, I want to invite uh, Steve Day on stage. Steve, uh, join me on stage, and we'll have our discussion. Thanks for joining us. Hey, John. Great to see you, Steve. Great to see you. Welcome. Let's pull our chairs forward if that's okay. We're supposed to move them oh, up moving here. forward. Okay, let me just grab some notes I had here for our discussion. Um, so glad you can make it, Steve. So um, for the folks in the room here who don't know what, you, what you're doing and where you're from, maybe you could start by giving us some background on what you're doing. Sure, sure. So I run um, cloud and infrastructure at National Australia Bank, which is one of the, the larger banks in Australia. Uh, it's 150 years old, uh, very heavily outsourced when I came in about six months ago, uh, and still is. And, and that's led to you know, quite a few problems, like you know, many large enterprises, uh, NAB decided to go on this outsourcing journey about 10 years ago, outsourced pretty much all of the infrastructure, and we've got to a point now where there's no internal staff with any technical capability. What we really have internally is contract managers that manage our outsourcers. Um, and that, that does create a lot of problems, right? Initially, when I think they outsourced, it, it gave all of the intended consequence. Uh, you know, prices were lower. Things happened in a more routine way. Uh, the outsourcing enforced a lot more documentation and process. But what it also did, and I think this was an unintended consequence, was it stopped innovation, right? Once you require a statement of work and negotiation and quotes and everything just to do anything new, uh, that is really a barrier to people experimenting and trying new things. So after about 10 years, even though I could look at all of the reports every month with our outsourcers and see that they were green, um, everything was green. Everyone was terribly unhappy. And that's just because it was green on a model from 10 years ago, not green on a model from today. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Now, I noticed I was reading in the news recently, Steve, that, uh, that, your, uh, that, that NAB is, um, is targeting a pretty aggressive move to the cloud. I think I said the plans to get to 35%. Uh, that's right, this year. Cloud. Yeah, so it's a, a very aggressive uh, move to the cloud. And, and that's really because we, we had a look at the situation that, that we're in, and we, we looked at public cloud and realized that that enabled us to completely pivot um, what or how we considered outsourcing, right? Because cloud is still outsourcing. You're outsourcing pretty much up to the hypervisor yep. uh, of your infrastructure, but you can maintain some level of control above that, and you can create platforms that allow, um, allow, uh, that allow you to enable your DevOps teams, right? Your application teams are able to uh, leverage this skill. They can, they can get platforms very quickly. They don't need to go through the whole turning up servers, all that nonsense. Uh, they get that very quickly. And what's more, because it's infrastructure as code, you can build in a lot of controls around that that are effectively invisible to those teams. So it's really about, the journey is not about the number, 35%. The journey is about enabling our, our service teams. Very cool. Now, I know that 
we have a we have a program here at AWS called 50 and 50, which is a pretty aggressive, pretty unique program to really provide an experiential outcome for companies that are undertaking aggressive migration plans. And I know you guys recently took advantage of that program. I'm curious to uh, to get your experience and what uh, how did that work for you? What, sure, what sure. Well, we are a bank. Um, so 50 and 50 was a bit aggressive. We, we settled on 30 and 50. Um, and that was really, we had to work with our regulators and we had to work with our internal risk and compliance teams. So that, that was the target from the beginning. Um, and I think it was a really great thing. It wasn't really about the number of 30 and 50, 50 and 50. It wasn't about that. It was about creating an imperative. It was about creating a situation where everybody had a shared outcome, bring everyone together, and we had top-level exec support all the way to the CEO that was incredibly interested in how we were going and was reading the reports every day on how we were going. And it was really turning um, what was normally a whole bunch of red tape, removing all of that and, and letting the teams see something that they thought was impossible actually become a reality. What would be an example of some of the red tape or kind of internal resistance that you might have seen in that project? Uh, all, of the, all of the compliance, I think, um, security, compliance, risk, all of those people would come in at certain junctures, right, and would be stage gates. Yeah. And they'd want to, you know, you'd have to stop, you'd have to get reviews, they'd have to look at everything. It was, they were, they were policemen, right? And I think one of the advantages of this program is we brought them all in at the beginning and they were part of the outcome. Mm -hmm. So they were engaged right from the beginning, they were embedded in the teams, and if we failed, they failed. So it, it became less of a policeman and more of an enablement function. I know communication was a big deal. You mentioned those daily reports that were coming out. I noticed there was a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, pretty, pretty. It was amazing. Like, like I said, you know, the CEO was sending out notes congratulating people when they actually got another app going, or you know, everyone was so enthralled in it that people were it, w it was not the right thing to be a blocker. It was the right thing to be part of the journey and be an enabler. That's exciting. So now that you've had that successful outcome, what were some of the learnings? We talked about enterprise DevOps earlier, and I know that you had a slide here uh, as one of your key learnings. I'm curious to learn more about the learnings from that project and how you guys are taking those forward as you continue your journey. Yeah, so this was really, you know, enterprise DevOps was the key, right? This was what we were really trying to achieve. And it was about getting out of the way of the application teams, yeah. right? They'd always had problems whenever they were trying to implement a new application or even maintain the application. The infrastructure team was always in the way. Um, and it was because, you know, you had to go through an outsourcer and you had to ask them to do things and it would go into a queue and da -da -da -da, all the normal big enterprise type problems. But this really gave us the opportunity to bake all of the controls that are so important for a bank into our code, right? And it basically made it invisible. Hmm. So unless somebody actually breached one of the controls, they didn't know it was there. There were no cabs to attend. There were no you know, meetings to do things. There was no uh, email compliance checks. There were no people coming in to audit, manually audit your environments. Um, everything was done in this automated system. So you got the, the very detective just Long going, way. yeah, and it was, you know, uh, it made the whole process invisible. Fantastic, and what was the impact to some of your processes in terms of processes that you previously had that now in the new cloud operating model, how did, how did that translate? Well, it all, it, it, it all um, dissolved, really, because you had all of these 
stop uh, you know stage gates before yep. and checks for an application team to put anything onto the infrastructure. Yep. And all of that went away. It became uh, going to a into a service catalog selector environment that you wanted that was all pre-baked, it would get turned up and be available within minutes. Brilliant. Right? And then you can start to deploy your apps on that. And as long as you don't break any of the governance rules, yeah. you never know about them. Keep going. You keep going, yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you heavily outsourced and now you're starting to take more control over your infrastructure in this project. How did you address that skills gap as you start launching these applications into the cloud? And I know you had another key learning here. I'm really curious as to how you guys manage that. Yeah, so that was a, a gap, right? So we, we had no technical staff, and then we were going to 35% of our apps, and, and we have 2,600 applications, that's a lot of apps, uh, into the cloud all of a sudden, and no one to really manage those platforms and, and develop those platforms internally. Um, so that's where AMS came in. So we, we, we spoke to AWS, talked about AMS, and what that is, it, it is that automated platform. Right, but it's automated platform developed by AWS using AWS best, best, uh, best practices, <laughs> using the best tools available, uh, and augmented by uh, AWS technical support staff. So it allowed us to get up and running before we could possibly hire or train the hundreds of staff required to do it. Powerful, powerful. And now in terms of integrating uh, AWS, AMS into your new process and workflow, um, how are you guys addressing that challenge given this project? Yeah, this is one of the best things about AMS is it, it integrates directly into our ITSM. So we have, we've um, implemented ServiceNow as our um, enterprise-wide um, ITSM. And it's wonderful now because if you want a new environment, if an application team needs a new environment, they go into ServiceNow, they go into the, the uh, product catalog, they select the, the particular environment they want, and it's immediately, it just sends an API across to AWS, and AWS build that entire landscape. And it's not, there's no components anymore, it's not a big box of Lego, it's, it's now, please build this environment for me. Yes, it's built. Once it's up and running, if we need to change that environment, again, straight into yep. ITSM, change management, I wanna make this change, it's a constrained change that we've done before, Again, an API call going saying, please make this change. No having to do all of the detail around it, and therefore it, you know, we have all the governance, we have all the controls, there's change calendars, everything built into the environment, so we get it all out of the box. And we also get ISO security, PCI, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, it all comes as standard, and we haven't had to spend months building this. Nice, nice. And I know you're, on the flip side of that from your legacy apps, you have your CI-CD pipeline that you guys are working on. I know that there was uh, discussion on how you're gonna integrate within your CIC pipe, the pipeline. Curious as to uh, how that's coming. Yeah, that's, that's, that's going pretty well. We haven't completed that, but the vision on that one is around the fact that um, we can move the entire environment through the pipeline as a single unit. So what you build as a sandbox is the production environment, or an exact replica of the production environment. It has all of the agents loaded for backup and patching and all of those things. It has all of our continuous compliance built in. So as we're going through the sandbox to the, the dev test, to the staging, to the production, any, any inconsistencies that are found with our operational environment are brought to light then, 
not as previously when you put it into prod, right. you would right. find all those in inconsistencies. Some driver didn't work with the patching agent or something like that. And so as you're trying a new AWS service in the sandbox, it might trigger things, you learn, you improve. You're finding you all surprises. of that and you're, and, you're, and you're thinking in terms of the complete platform and governance all the way through the pipeline. Nice, so it's a powerful vision, that's for sure. Uh, I'm curious, Steve, um, you know, why, why was AMS a good fit for NAB and what you guys are trying to accomplish? Um, I, I think it really came down to that, that skills gap. Yep. Um, and by the way, you know, AMS is not our long-term vision, right? AMS is a stopgap for us. It yep. is, it's going to help us build the platforms in a best practice way, get up and running as we bring our staff in, as we get our training completed, we'll get to a point where we, we, we know we can operate this environment ourselves because yep. it is all automated. We can, we can build the platforms, we can maintain the platforms. At that point, you know, we're going to pull back from, from AMS and, and run the service internally ourselves, which will give us you know, full control, give us um, ownership of the, of the thing and the right outsourcing, insourcing in balance that we're comfortable with. Yep. Um, but it'll help us do it in an incredibly safe and thoughtful way. That's powerful. I mean, there's a lot of people in the audience here today, Steve, that are probably going through the same thing that you guys have gone through or are going through right now. I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're wondering, based on the learnings that you guys have gone through and, and the scars that you guys have had, you know, if you could do it all over again, or if you're advising these folks as to what they, you know, what are the one or two things that you think that they should put first as they venture in the road of moving a going all in on the cloud, so to speak. Yeah, I think that imperative is, is, is an important one. That whole project around give yourself some artificial targets to meet and, and really enforce that. Because if you just wait for everyone to sort of be happy with how it's going to work, uh, I don't think you'll, you'll, you'll ever make that move. And it, it's a lot of work and you have to focus on it. Um, and I think that, that other thing is bringing everybody in on the journey right from the beginning and getting everyone to work as one, that is, is, is vitally important. And, and, important. and I think number three is don't boil the ocean. Don't try and create your own operational environment at the same time that you're building your platforms. You know, at the same time you're trying to migrate your applications. It's, it's, it's just too hard. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Big round of applause for Steve Day. Before we finish today, though, I just wanted to, to uh, point out a couple more sessions for you guys. There's a couple more enterprise, deep dive enterprise sessions. Uh, the one uh, later this afternoon, I've been told, uh, is in a different room, so just look for ENT 311. Uh, and then we're having this session for other people from your team that might want to see this session again tomorrow morning at the Mirage. Uh, wanted to feel free to come talk to us at a booth, come talk to our partners. Uh, and last but not least, Please, please, please fill out your survey. I really enjoyed having you guys today. Have a great conference. Thanks a lot.